Hey guys, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is episode two of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and we will be covering chapters 14 through the end of the book. If you're in a book that has volumes, it's volume two, chapter six through the end of the book, and then going over themes in depth at the end. Chapter 14 or chapter six. So the monster learns the history of these people. The old man's name is DeLacy, and he was a wealthy man in France, respected and beloved. Felix and Agatha enjoyed their wealthy lives and were highly regarded and lived in luxury in Paris. Safi was the daughter of a Turkish merchant who lived in Paris. And on page 104, the monster says, For some reason which I could not learn, he became obnoxious to the government. So Safi's dad was arrested and taken to prison the day that his daughter, Safi, arrived from Constantinople to join him in Paris. Safi's father was condemned to death for what he did, and there was a lot of uproar and pushback from the people because they believed it was his religion and wealth that had caused the judge to condemn him to death. Basically, the judge they thought the judge was being racist against him. Felix was at his trial. He was especially outraged, and he made a vow to get this man out of prison and save him. And he finally found a way into the prison to meet this man and told him his plans to get him out. The man offered him money in exchange, but Felix refused. So Safi was there at the time that Felix came to visit her father. Felix saw her and fell instantly in love, and she fell in love with him too. The father saw this happening before him, and he offers Safi's hand in marriage if Felix gets him out. Felix doesn't accept this offer either, but he hopes that it would come about. So... Safi wrote several letters to Felix in the days leading up to her father's escape. She used a translator for this because they didn't speak the same language. And the monster tells Dr. Frankenstein in the cave, remember he's telling this story in the cave, he tells Frankenstein that he has copies of these letters to give him as proof of his tale. I don't know why he needs proof, but... So Safi told Felix that her mother was a Christian Arab and was taken as a slave by the Turks and made to marry Safi's father. Her mother resented her bondage, taught her daughter to aspire to higher powers of intellect and to be independent, unlike most females in their country and religion. And Safi loved the idea of marrying a European Christian man and staying in Europe. So she is especially excited about the prospect of marrying Felix. Felix successfully helps Safi's father escape from prison the night before his execution. And the three of them travel together far away from Paris, eventually getting to Italy. Before Felix left Paris, he obtained passports for his father and sister and told them of his plans. He's planning on escaping Paris, basically. So Felix stays with Safi in hopes that the promise of marriage will come to pass. So Felix calls Safi's dad the Turk. So the Turk allowed Felix and Safi to flirt, but he had no real intention of allowing his daughter to marry a Christian European man. He didn't want Felix to betray him, though, so until he was safe in his own country, he would not divulge this information to Felix. So the government of France figured out that it was Felix who took the Turk out of prison, and they captured and imprisoned Felix's father and sister as punishment. So Felix heard of this, obviously immediately leaves to go and get them out of prison, and he arranged for the last of the Turks to escape to Constantinople before he left, and he told the Turk to leave Safi in Italy in a convent, and he would come back for her, and they would get married. Obviously, the Turk did not plan on doing this. Felix goes back. He can't get his family out of prison, They spent five months in a cell, and they were tried, and their punishment was being deprived of their fortune and exiled from their country. So they're kicked out of France, they lose all their money, and he says on 107 they found a miserable asylum in the cottage in Germany, which is where they are now. Felix then learns of the Turks' deceit. This is why Felix was the saddest in the family, why he was always looking very sad because he lost his true love, And he was the cause of his family's ruin. All of this he did for a deceitful man. So meanwhile, Safi tells her father that she's not going to go back to her native country. He would hear nothing of this. He hired a a vessel to take him to Constantinople. And I don't know why he did this. It seems weird if he really wanted Safi to come with him. But Safi was 
to stay behind and wait for the rest of her father's fortune to arrive, and then she would travel to him in Constantinople. Instead, Seyfi searched her father's things and found out where Felix was in Germany. She took all of her jewels and some money with her and left Italy with a guide who took her to Germany. She arrived near the cottage in Germany, but her guide got sick and died. But luckily, the woman they were staying with knew the cottage and took her there to reunite with Felix. Okay, chapter 15 or chapter 7. So the monster finds a leather bag in the woods that is filled with some clothes and three books. The books are Paradise Lost, Poltark's Lives, and The Sorrows of Werder. And he takes them back to his hut and reads them whenever he isn't observing the humans. And he experiences a full range of emotions while reading these books, learning things he could never have learned from observing the humans alone. So he talks about The Sorrows of Werder first. It's also titled Sorrows of Young Werther. This is an epistolary novel about a man's response to unrequited love. He falls in love with a girl who's already engaged to someone else. And even though he can't be with her, he remains close to her as a friend, but it drives him to terrible sorrow and he ends up unaliving himself. The monster obviously relates to Werder. They both have been rejected by those that they loved. And reading these books confuses the monster even more about his own life and how he came to be. On page 110, he says, my person was hideous and my stature gigantic. What did this mean? Who was I? What was I? Whence did I come? What was my destination? These questions continually reoccurred, but I was unable to solve them. So next he reads Poltark's Lives, which is subtitled Lives of Noble Greeks and Romans, and it's also referred to as Parallel Lives. This is a series of 48 biographies of famous men. So they paired 23 men, one Greek, one Roman, of similar destiny. For example, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. So it's the Roman and Greek counterparts. On page 110, he says, I learned from Werder's imaginations, despondency, and gloom, but Poltark taught me high thoughts. He elevated me above the wretched sphere of my own reflections to admire and love the heroes of past ages. From this book, he learns about kingdoms and histories and wars, governing, things like that. But by far, Paradise Lost affected him the most. The monster read Paradise Lost as if it were true history. So Paradise Lost is an epic poem concerning the fall of man. So it's the Garden of Eden story. The monster finds a lot of similarities between the story and himself, especially the creation of man. He says on page 111, like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence. But Adam was happy and wanted and the monster was helpless and alone. And obviously God made Eve for Adam. And so he just feels even more alone because this one person he can relate his story to, even he wasn't alone. He says, many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition. For often, like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. So the monster finds in the pockets of the clothing that he's wearing that he took from Dr. Frankenstein's house some papers that Dr. Frankenstein wrote. And it's Frankenstein's journal, the four months leading up to the monster's creation. And now he can finally read those papers. He finds his creation disgusting and he sees that Frankenstein himself was disgusted by it. He says on page 112, hateful day when I received life, accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? So the monster says that even Satan had his companions to admire him, but he is solitary and abhorred. The monster comes up with a plan to go and speak to the old man because he's blind and this is his best option. So he tries to find a time when the old man is alone in the house and he can speak to him, get in his good graces, so that when the others come to meet this monster, the old man can tell them he's kind and timid and won't hurt them. He's obviously terrified to do this. So during this time, he planned and waited for his time to go through with the plan. He allowed himself to fantasize about these people becoming his friends and loving him. And he says on page 113, but it was all a dream. No Eve soothed my sorrows, nor shared my thoughts. I was alone. I remembered Adam's supplication to his creator, but where was mine? He had abandoned me, and in the bitterness of my heart, I cursed him. So finally, one day in late autumn, the beginning of winter, an opportunity arises for him to speak to the old man. 
The old man is staying behind while the others go on a long walk. The monster gathers his courage and knocks on the door. The old man allows him to enter, and he starts talking to him. He tells the old man that he's a traveler seeking rest, and the old man makes conversation with him, asking if he is French like himself, and the monster says no, but he learned from French people his language and everything, and he tells the old man that he's quite alone in the world. No one will be his friend because of the way that he looks, and the old man is like, that's so sad. The monster tells him that he's been quietly helping and observing these people he considers his friends with without their knowledge, and he hopes that they will love him, but he is afraid. And the old man offers to be a voice of non-prejudice for him since he can't see him, but he can tell by his voice and his manner that he is a good person. The monster is obviously grateful for this. This is exactly what he wanted. And the old man asks who the family is. Right as this happens, the other members of this family start approaching the house. The monster hears them and he falls to his knees in front of the old man and tells him that the family is his own and begs him to tell his family that he's a good man. As he's on his knees in front of the old man, the rest of the family comes in. Agatha faints when she sees the monster. Safi runs away and Felix attacks him with a stick. The monster flees out of the house back to his hut. No one sees him go inside his little hovel next to the cottage, but they all freak out and make him leave. Chapter 16 or chapter 8. The monster grieves this loss, this huge loss. He was so excited about this opportunity and now it's ruined. And he considers taking his own life, but he doesn't. He leaves the hut in the middle of the night and goes into the woods and becomes animal-like in his rage, howling and destroying everything in his path. He sits down and rests and knows that no one will pity him or care about him, and he declares everlasting war against humans, especially his creator. He stays in the woods till morning, so he can't return to his hut, and he thinks about what happened the day before and wonders if he wasn't too hasty in his conclusions. The old man seemed to be sympathetic towards him, and if the monster had planned it better, the old man could have prepared his children for meeting the monster, and it would have gone much better. So the monster decides to return to the cottage and find the old man alone again and try one more time. So that night, he travels back to the cottage into his hut. The cottage is dark. No one seems to be inside. And when morning comes, the monster sees two men approach the cottage and Felix appears. He didn't come from the cottage, but from somewhere else. And what's happening is Felix and his family left the cottage soon after the monster attacked. And Felix is now negotiating with the owner of the cottage, trying to get out of his lease, trying to not pay rent because they can no longer live there. One of the men tells Felix that if he leaves now, he'll have to pay three months rent and they will lose all the produce in their garden. Felix tells him it doesn't matter. They have no choice because his father's life is in danger and his wife and sisters will never recover from this horror that they experienced. Felix leaves and the monster never sees any of that family ever again. So the monster is in deep despair again, having lost his second chance at finding companions. And he says on page 119, For the first time the feelings of revenge and hatred filled my bosom, and I did not strive to control them. I bent my mind towards injury and death. That night he destroys the cottage and the garden and everything around it. He sets the cottage on fire and watches it burn until he is sure there is no way of saving it. And he leaves the scene and flees into the woods. He travels towards Geneva, knowing that's where his creator is from, from reading his journal. And he says on 120, From you only could I hope for succor. Although towards you I felt no sentiment but that of hatred, unfeeling, heartless creator. You had endowed me with perceptions and passions, and then cast me abroad an object for the scorn and horror of mankind. So he is determined to seek justice. He travels through the winter, freezing and angry, and he arrives in Switzerland right as spring approaches. He travels by night most of the time, but on this first warm morning, he continues hiking through the thick trees as the sun rises. And he hears voices, hides, and watches as a young girl runs along the river and falls in. The monster goes into the water and saves her from this, like, rapid river, and he tries to revive her. But as he does, a man comes takes the girl from the monster and runs and the monster follows them and the man shoots him in the shoulder and injures him. He continues through the woods for weeks trying to heal his wound and he finally reaches Geneva and hides in the woods nearby Dr. Frankenstein's home. A young beautiful boy approaches the monster's hiding place. 
this is Dr. Frankenstein's younger brother, the monster realizes that if he captures this boy and takes him with him, he can teach him to love him despite his monsterly looks, and maybe this could be his companion. So he grabs the boy, and the boy screams, calls him a monster, an ogre, an ugly wretch, and the monster is like, I won't hurt you, and the boy threatens to tell his father. The monster tells the boy, like, you must come with me, you'll never see your father again, and the boy says, my father is important he will punish you his and he tells him his name is frankenstein and hearing this the monster realizes that this boy is related to his creator and he strangles the boy in anger he says on 123 i gazed on my victim and my heart swelled with exultation and hellish triumph clapping my hands i exclaimed i too can create desolation my enemy is not invulnerable this death will carry despair to him and a thousand other miseries shall torment and destroy him So in the pocket of the boy's clothing, he finds a photo of a beautiful woman and he takes it. He gets more upset knowing he will be forever deprived of love from a woman such as this. And he seeks refuge in a nearby barn. But when he walks in, he realizes that there is a woman asleep in there. She's beautiful. And he goes to wake her by whispering to her, Awake, fairest, thy lover is near. And she starts to wake up and he backs away because he realizes that if she sees him, she will tell everyone he murdered the boy. And this is when he decides that because she's beautiful and will never look upon him and smile, she should be punished. So he places the photo that the boy had into her pocket and he says on 124, not I, but she shall suffer the murder I have committed because I am forever robbed of all that she could give me. She shall atone. So he leaves the barn, goes back into the woods, and again he considers suicide, but doesn't go through with it, and he ends his story to Dr. Frankenstein in the cave, imploring him to create a female creature who will be like him physically and will be his loving companion. So now we're back in the cave. Dr. Frankenstein is listening to the monster's story, which has just concluded. Chapter 17 or Chapter 9 So the monster finishes his story and Dr. Frankenstein takes over the narrative again. The monster tells him he must create a female companion for him. And Frankenstein is feeling very angry because he just heard the truth about the death of his brother and he refuses to comply with the monster's demand. The monster reminds Frankenstein that this is all his doing. He created him. He's responsible to make it right. And he tells him that if he doesn't comply, he's like, I will ruin your life bit by bit. He says on page 126, What I ask of you is reasonable and moderate. I demand a creature of another sex, but as hideous as myself, the gratification is small, but it is all that I can receive, and it shall content me. It is true we shall be monsters, cut off from all the world, but on that account we shall be more attached to one another. Our lives will not be happy, but they will be harmless and free from the misery I now feel. Frankenstein is moved by this speech. And the monster sees this, so he continues, and he promises to go to South America, live in the wild with the animals, and that no human will see either of them ever again. They will live as herbivores and hurt no one. Frankenstein says again, he's like, I can't do this. He's like, how do I know that you won't grow bored or angry and come out of hiding and again hurt people? The monster swears to him that he will not hurt another human or come in contact with them. And Frankenstein to himself thinks on page 127, as I could not sympathize with him, I had no right to withhold from him the small portion of happiness which was yet in my power to bestow. So Frankenstein thinks for a long time and then he consents. The monster is elated. He tells Frankenstein that he'll keep watch over his progress. There's no need to contact him when it's done. He'll come to him and he leaves the cave. Frankenstein returns to his family in Geneva ignores their questions about his appearance, and he scarcely speaks at all and resolves himself to this most abhorred task of creating a female monster. Okay, this is volume three, so chapter 18 or chapter one of volume three. Dr. Frankenstein procrastinates hard. He avoids anything to do with the creation of the female monster. He knows it's going to take several months of study and labor to create this monster, and he just really doesn't want to do it. He had heard of an English philosopher whose recent discoveries could aid him in his creation, but he made no attempt to go to England and study with him. He did anything he could to delay this process. So during this delay, his health is restored. 
This pleases his father, but his father still knows that Victor is unhappy. So one day he talks to him and asks him if his unhappiness stems from his lack of desire to marry Elizabeth. Victor and Elizabeth marrying has always been the plan, and it's what his father wants, but he asks Victor if he thinks of Elizabeth as more of a sister and doesn't want to marry her. Victor assures his father that the prospect of marrying Elizabeth is what makes him the happiest in life, and his father is like, okay, well then why don't you get married now instead of waiting? But Victor knows he can't marry her until after he completes his task of creating a female monster. He knows what he has to do. He needs to leave Elizabeth and his family home for several months, travel to England, learn from this philosopher, create his monster alone, far from people he loves, so that they're not in any danger. If he's successful, he'll come back and marry Elizabeth and they will live in peace. He tells his father that he needs to travel to England And after that, he'll marry Elizabeth. And his father agrees. And he says, you can be gone for up to a year, no longer. And you'll marry Elizabeth as soon as you return. Elizabeth is saddened by this, but she knows not to try to stop Victor. And so she arranges for Victor's friend, Henry Clairval, to join Victor on this trip because she doesn't want him to be alone. Victor is thankful for this, but he hopes it won't be difficult to get alone time to work. As Victor leaves, he worries that the monster will mistake his leaving to work as fleeing and that he'll attack his family, but he has faith that the monster is smarter than that. He knows that the monster will follow him wherever he goes. So he leaves Geneva in late August and heads towards England. He meets Henry Clairval in Strasbourg, and they continue the rest of their journey together. Clairval is a huge optimist. He's very positive. He's always seeing the beauty in things. And in his narration, Victor comments on page 135. So he says, you, my friend, he's addressing Robert Walton, the man scribing this journal, would be far more amused with the journal of Clairval, who observed the scenery with an eye of feeling and delight than in listening to my reflection. I, a miserable wretch, haunted by a curse that shut up every avenue of enjoyment. So Clairval is just a really nice guy. He's an optimist. He's just great. So from Strasbourg, France, they go to Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands, on a boat through the Rhine River. The scenery pleases both men, but Henry, it says on 136, he felt as if he'd been transported to fairyland and enjoyed a happiness seldom tasted by man. So here, Victor compares the scenery around them to his home in Switzerland, and he sings praises of Henry Clairval, calling him his most beloved friend. He says his soul overflowed with ardent affections and his friendship was of that devoted and wondrous nature that the worldly minded teach us to look for in the imagination. Here he quotes a poem, Tintern Abbey by William Wordsworth, and then he continues talking about Henry. He says on 137, and where does Henry now exist? Is this gentle and lovely being lost forever? Has this mind perished? Does it now only exist in memory? No, it is not thus. Your form so divinely wrought and beaming with beauty has decayed, but your spirit still visits and consoles your unhappy friends. So Henry has died, but we don't know how he dies yet. Victor begs pardon for this gush of sorrow and goes on to say that they journeyed through Cologne to Holland and finally reached Rotterdam where they took a boat to England. They crossed the English Channel into the River Thames And this was the end of September, and they toured the main sites of London. Chapter 19, or Chapter 2. On page 139, it says, London was our present point of rest. We determined to remain several months in this wonderful and celebrated city. So Henry obviously spends his time meeting new people. Seeing the sights, he's so happy. Victor goes with him sometimes, but his chief objective is to learn from these philosophers so he can get this all over with. He finds it hard to enjoy his time in London because there's obviously a dark cloud over him of his daunting task and obviously the deaths of William and Justine. Henry expresses his desire to visit India and assist in the colonization and trade there. So he is busy in London getting all of those affairs in order and Victor does his own thing while trying to conceal his grief and stress from his friend. Victor begins collecting the necessary materials to complete this new creature, aka he's digging up graves again and stealing body parts of corpses. In February, they receive a letter from a person in Scotland. He's an acquaintance they knew from Geneva, and he invites them to come to Perth to see him. Perth, Scotland, not Perth, Australia. 
They accept this invitation. Clairval accepts for the company and Victor for the mountains and the nature he craves over this city life in London. They decide they'll head north to Perth in a month, and on the journey, they would stop and visit Windsor, Oxford, Matlock, and the Cumberland Lakes, and they'll make it to Perth by the end of July. That's their plan. Victor plans to finish his creation in the northern highlands of Scotland when they arrive. They stay a while in each place, enjoying the colleges and the architecture. On 141, Frankenstein says, I enjoyed this scene, and yet my enjoyment was embittered both by the memory of the past and the anticipation of the future. I am a blasted tree. The bolt has entered my soul, and I felt then that I should arrive to exhibit what I shall soon cease to be, a miserable spectacle of wrecked humanity, pitiable to others and intolerable to myself. So he's really struggling here. They stayed the longest time in Oxford. They leave regretfully because they loved it. They continue on to Matlock, which they say resembled Switzerland the most out of anywhere they've been. They toured large caves around there, but they reminded Victor of his run-in with the monster, so they left Matlock quickly. They spend two months in Cumberland and Westmoreland, where they met people who delighted them both. Clairville says he could live there and be happy. And they were due to their friend in Perth soon, so they traveled on. Victor was getting anxious, knowing that he has delayed his task for too long, and he's worried that the monster is going to hurt someone he loves. He was stressful, waiting for letters from home. He was nervous to open all of these letters because he was afraid he'd read that someone else had died. And he refused to leave Henry's side, worried that the monster would try to kill him too. On 143, he says, I felt as if I had committed some great crime, the consciousness of which haunted me. I was guiltless. But I had indeed drawn a horrible curse upon my head as mortal as that of crime, which I wholly disagree with. He is not guiltless. He created a monster and allowed him to flee without A, destroying it, or B, keeping the monster, teaching him, and then presenting him to society where people wouldn't run from him. There are many options he could have taken here, and the one he did, in my opinion, he is not guiltless. He is responsible for the deaths of William and Justine. They continue north to Edinburgh and spend a week there, and then they arrive in Perth. Here at their final destination, Victor knows he can't wait any longer, and so he tells Henry that he is going to take a lone tour of Scotland. Henry doesn't like the idea, but he allows Victor to go on his own, and Victor says he'll be gone for a month or two. He's like, don't try to find me or interfere with my plans. I promise I'll return happier and in my old spirits. So Henry lets him go. Victor proceeds to the northern highlands, to the islands of, it's called the Islands of the Orkneys, and he goes to the most remote island. He says it's basically a rock, the waves crash upon it endlessly, and there are only five other inhabitants, and they all go, have to go to the mainland for food and water. That's how remote it is. There are three huts on the island, and Victor rents out the only vacant one that has two bedrooms. So in the mornings, he spends working, and at night, he walks on the beach. Sometimes he goes days without being able to work because he's horrified, and sometimes he works endlessly for days just trying to get it finished. On page 145, he says, During my first experiment, a kind of enthusiastic frenzy had blinded me to the horror of my employment. My mind was intently fixed on the consummation of my labor, and my eyes were shut to the horror of my proceedings. But now I went to it in cold blood, and my heart sickened at the work of my hands. So Victor is afraid every moment that he's going to meet the monster, and he is pretty far along in his work at this point. Okay, chapter 20 or chapter 3. One night, while Victor is working, he's getting close to finishing his second creation, and he comes to a realization. He thinks about the effects of what he's doing. Three years ago, he created a monster who has now destroyed his life, and here he is building another one. The monster had obviously promised to leave the human world behind and never interact with them again, but what if the female monster refused? What if she didn't like the monster? What if she desired other human men? What if the monsters mated and they created a race of devils on the earth? That's what Victor calls them. It says on 147, Had I a right, for my own benefit, to inflict this curse upon everlasting generations, I shuddered to think that future ages might curse me as their pest, whose selfishness had not hesitated to buy its own peace at the price, perhaps, of the existence of the whole human race. So this is an obvious 
complete switch from the last time he was creating a monster. Remember, he thought about how people for generations would praise him. They would write about him in history books. And now here he is afraid that they will curse him for what he's done. So as he ponders this, he looks up and he sees through the window the monster is grinning at him. Seeing the monster provokes Victor into action and he ends up destroying all of his progress and the creature he was about to create. The monster watches this and he screams in despair and he flees and Victor leaves his laboratory and vows never to resume his work. Hours pass before the monster comes back and he enters Victor's hut. He says, do you dare break your promise? The monster asks and he tells him, he's like, I have journeyed alongside you all this time in the cold, in hunger, and now you dare to destroy my hopes. And Frankenstein tells him, he's like, I will never create another monster like you. The monster reminds him that he has the power to make his life more miserable than he can imagine. Frankenstein tells him, he's like, your threats are not going to change my mind. And then the monster says this to him. Shall each man find a wife for his bosom and each beast have his mate and I be alone? Are you to be happy while I grovel in the intensity of my wretchedness? You can blast my other passions, but revenge remains. Revenge henceforth shall curse the sun that gazes on your misery. Beware, for I am fearless and therefore powerful. So the monster leaves and he tells Frankenstein that he will be with him on his wedding night. Frankenstein watches as the monster boards a boat and leaves. And he wonders, he's like, why don't I follow him? Why don't I try to kill him? And he thinks about his promise to be with him on his wedding night. And he assumes that will be the night that he dies. So he's he's like, maybe that will be the end. It's me or the monster, basically. He, revo- he resolves to fight back against the monster when they meet again. And he thinks for a moment, maybe he will just stay on this barren rock for the rest of his life rather than watch everyone he knows die by the monster's hand. He walks to the beach that morning and he falls asleep on the sand. A boat appears and he awakes on the beach. The boatman gives him mail from Geneva and mail from Henry. Henry says in his letter that he wants to return to London to finish his dealings with India and he asks for Victor to return with him. Victor decides he'll leave the island in two days and return to London with Henry. So he goes into his lab, he cleans the tools, he puts all the creature's remains into a basket full of rocks, and in the middle of the night he gets on a sailboat, goes far out into the sea, and drops the basket and watches it sink. Instead of heading back to shore, he lies on his back and falls asleep, and he wakes up in the middle of a storm. He finds that he's been driven very far out to sea, there's no land in sight, and he thinks maybe he's going to die out there. And finally, he sees land. He fixes his sail with his clothing and heads the direction of the land. He gets to shore, he ties up the boat, and there's a group of people gathered around. He hears them speaking English, and so in English, he asks them what the name of the town is. They're super rude to him, they won't answer his questions, and he wonders aloud what kind of people are rude to visitors. And a man responds that it's the custom of the Irish to hate villains. This obviously confuses Victor. A man comes forward and tells him that he must come with him to speak to the magistrate, Mr. Kerwin, to give an account for himself because last night a man was murdered and he is a suspect. Chapter 21 or Chapter 4. Victor goes to meet with Mr. Kerwin. There are other people there claiming to be witnesses to this murder. There's about six people who come forward with an account. The first says that he had been out fishing with two others at 10 p.m. that night, and when they came back into the harbor because of the storm, they walked on the beach and they came upon a dead man. His clothes weren't wet, so that so he wasn't drowned and then washed up on shore. He must have died on the beach. And so they carried the body to a nearby cottage of an old woman, and they tried and failed to revive him. There are strangled black marks on his neck. Upon hearing about the black marks on his neck, Frankenstein trembles, remembering his brother's death the same way, and wonders if the monster is responsible. One of the other men who was fishing testified, saying that right before they came upon the body, he saw a man out in a boat alone, and he thought it was the same boat that Frankenstein just came ashore in. A woman testifies that she lived near the beach, and an hour before the body was discovered, she saw a boat with just one man in it push off from the shore where the body was found. The old woman confirmed that the body had been brought to her cottage, and several others testified about Frankenstein landing on shore. 
So after hearing all the evidence, Mr. Kerwin brings Frankenstein to see the dead body to see what sort of reaction he would have. Frankenstein enters the room, sees that the body is his friend, Henry Clairval, and he throws himself on the body and in French, his native tongue, he exclaims, Have my murderous machinations deprived you also, my dearest Henry, of life? Two, I have already destroyed. Other victims await their destiny. Victor was carried out of the room, convulsing. He was taken to a prison cell, and there he lay in a feverish stupor for two months. In French, he raved on and on about how he was the murderer, but Mr. Kerwin is the only one who understands French. Victor says on 157, Why did I not die? More miserable than man ever was before. Why did I not sink into forgetfulness and rest? Death snatches away many blooming children, the only hopes of their doting parents. How many brides and youthful lovers have been one day in the bloom of health and hope, and the next a prey for worms, and the decay of the tomb? Of what materials was I made that I could thus resist so many shocks, which, like the turning of a wheel, continually renewed the torture? But I was doomed to live. So, he lies in prison on the brink of death for two months. He wakes up and finds a nurse and a doctor that have been attending to him. They were placed there by Mr. Kerwin. Mr. Kerwin is really the only one who thinks Frankenstein is innocent. The nurse and the doctor, while they keep him alive, are unkind to him and they even accuse him of being the murderer. And it says on 159, who could be interested in the fate of a murderer but the hangman who would gain his fee? So as Frankenstein regains his strength, he contemplates pleading guilty because he considers himself less innocent than poor Justine. Mr. Kerwin comes to see him and offers him sympathy and tells him that evidence can easily be brought to free him of criminal charge. Frankenstein says that's the least of his worries. He is tortured and death is nothing to him. Mr. Kerwin says that he took the papers that were on Victor's person when he came to prison and he found out all he could about him and he ended up writing to his father. This horrifies Victor because he thinks he's about to tell him more of his loved ones have died. But Mr. Kerwin tells him that his family is fine and that someone has come to see him. Frankenstein thinks for a second that it's the monster and he's like, tell him to go away. He's like, no, no, your father is here to see you. So his father enters the cell, assures him that his family is safe and he feels sorry for his son. He says, you traveled to seek happiness, but fatality seems to pursue you. So they were only allowed to speak for a few minutes and the father is taken away so Victor can recover his health. He lies in gloom, almost wishing for death to overcome him. So he's been in prison for three months now and they finally transport him to the court where his hearing is being held. It's 100 miles away. The jury rejects the bill. Proof had been given that he was on the Orkney Islands at the time the body was found, and he is let go, and he travels back to Geneva with his father. He still suffers from deep despair, and his father tries to make him feel happier by talking of home and Elizabeth and his brother Ernest, but Victor has a hard time rousing any feelings except sorrow, but he knows he must return home to watch over his loved ones and protect them from the monster. His duty is now to kill the monster before he can kill anyone else that he loves. So they board a boat from Ireland to Geneva, and Victor, aboard the boat, dreams of his fallen loved ones. He says on 163, Clairval, my friend and dearest companion, had fallen a victim to me and the monster of my creation. He ends up taking a narcotic called laudanum every night so he can sleep. He takes double the dose one time, but it ends up giving him very lifelike nightmares. Okay, chapter 22 or chapter 5. So they land in France, proceed to Paris where they end up staying for a while because Victor is sick again and he needs to rest. His father tries to cure him of his illness, but he doesn't know that he obviously was seeking to remedy an incurable ill. And he tries to get Victor to go out to see people, but Victor doesn't want to. He says on 165, I felt that I had no right to share their intercourse. I had unchained an enemy among them whose joy it was to shed their blood and to revel in their groans. So in frustration, he tells his father that he will not seek company and that he is responsible for Justine, William, and Henry's deaths. He says they all died by my hands. 
This is something that he said to his father before, during his time in prison, and he asks Victor for an explanation, but Victor never gives one. His father tells him to never say anything like that again, and Victor tells him, I'm not crazy. On 166, he says, I am the assassin of those most innocent victims. A thousand times would I have shed my own blood, drop by drop, to have saved their lives, but I could not sacrifice the whole human race. His father is now obviously convinced that he's deranged. So a few days before they leave Paris for Geneva, Victor gets a letter from Elizabeth. She tells him that she's super worried, that she's been worried for a long time, that he doesn't want to marry her, that he thinks of her as a sister or that he's in love with someone else, and that if he doesn't want to marry her, that's okay. She doesn't want to be the source of his sorrow. The letter reminds Victor of the monster's threat that he'll be with him on his wedding night. And he thinks about this and he's like, okay, either I'm going to die or the monster will die and his power over me will end either way. And I personally find it hard to believe that he didn't at all consider the monster killing Elizabeth on their wedding night, but apparently he doesn't. He says, if I had known what was going to happen, I would have felt differently. But the monster's plan is to induce sorrow upon him like his own, and so why would he just kill him rather than kill the people that he loves and continue to torture him? Anyway, he reads the letter over and over, knowing that he only loves Elizabeth and wants to marry her. He would die to make her happy, and he's afraid that if he postponed the wedding, the monster will think he's up to something and retaliate. So he resolves that he and Elizabeth will be married as soon as he gets back to Geneva, and he writes to Elizabeth to tell her this. On 169, he says, I fear my beloved girl, little happiness remains for us on earth, yet all that I may one day enjoy is centered in you. He tells her that he has a terrible secret that he will reveal to her the day after they're married, but he asks her not to mention it before then, (laughs) which (laughs) nothing like secrets and hiding things to get a girl excited about marrying you. Anyway, they return to Geneva. Elizabeth welcomes Victor home. He has fits of rage and sorrow, and he spends a lot of time alone. His father asks again if he loves another and doesn't want to marry Elizabeth. Victor assures him that he loves only her, and they plan the wedding for 10 days from now. Here, Frankenstein interrupts the narrative to tell Robert Walton that if he, for even a second, thought that the monster would harm Elizabeth on their wedding night, he would have banished himself from their presence forever. But apparently he didn't think that was even possible and just thought the monster would come after him and they'd fight to the death. He says the monster blinded him to his real intentions, which again, I find hard to believe, but here we are. So they prepare for the wedding. Elizabeth seems a little withdrawn and concerned, probably thinking, what am I getting myself into here? Marrying a man with horrific secrets to tell me only after I am bound to him for life. The wedding plans continue anyway. Victor's father was able to secure Elizabeth with her inheritance from the Austrian government. She inherits a small portion of land on the shores of Lake Como, Italy, and this is where they plan to honeymoon. Victor is strapped with a pistol and a dagger at all times, waiting for the monster to attack. The ceremony is performed. Elizabeth and Victor leave in a small boat, and they go to sleep at an inn called Evian, before going to Lake Como the next day. It says on 172, those were the last moments of my life during which I enjoyed the feeling of happiness. Elizabeth on the boat ride is sorrowful and quiet, but she tries to reassure him that she's okay. She just feels like something daunting is approaching, and honestly, women's intuition is unmatched. Chapter 23 or chapter 6. They arrive at the inn at 8 p.m., and a rainstorm hits. Victor is clearly agitated. Elizabeth tries to calm him, and he tells her that this is a dreadful night, but after it, all will be safe, and he tells her to go to bed, and he'll join her later after the monster confronts him. He obviously doesn't say this to Elizabeth. Of course, it's not long after that that he hears Elizabeth scream. He runs to her room and sees her lying dead, strangled on the bed. He screams over and over. He rushes to her, and again wonders how he did not die in that moment from sorrow. She has been thrown across the bed by the monster after he strangled her. Victor ends up fainting, and he wakes up surrounded by people from the inn who heard him screaming and came to help. And they have taken Elizabeth into a different room, and Victor goes to find her. He embraces her, sees the marks on her neck, and he looks up and sees the monster grinning at him through a window, just as he had right before Victor destroyed the female monster. The monster runs into the trees, 
and Victor fires his pistol at him but misses. People come running into the room having heard the pistol and he tells them, I saw the murderer and they all go out and pursue him and they try for several hours to find him and they fail. Some people think that this was all a ruse to distract them from the fact that Victor is the one who killed his wife and he passes out again and is carried to bed. When he wakes up, he sees women crying around Elizabeth's body. He says on 176, I was bewildered, in a cloud of wonder and horror. The death of William, the execution of Justine, the murder of Clerval, and lastly of my wife. Even at that moment, I knew not that my only remaining friends were safe. So in fear, he gets in a boat and rows back to Geneva to ensure the safety of his father and his brother his only family left. He says on 177, a fiend had snatched from me every hope of future happiness. No creature had ever been so miserable as I was. So frightful an event is single in the history of man, which is similar to what the monster says about his own experience. So Victor tells Walton that his story is coming to a close. He says he arrived in Geneva, found his father and brother safe, but his father is so broken by the news of Elizabeth that he falls ill and he died a few days later. And you've got to wonder if his father on his deathbed was like, damn, did Victor kill all these people? Because it sure seems like it. On 178, Victor says, What then became of me? I know not. I lost sensation and chains and darkness were the only objects that pressed upon me. So he, upon the death of his father, is taken to an asylum because he's gone absolutely mad. He awakes many months later from this madness, and he has been confined all this time. They release him, and he immediately goes to the magistrate and asks for his help. He tells him the short version of what happened about creating his monster and what he's done since, and he asks him to use all the power, all the forces he has to bring this monster to justice. The magistrate believes him mostly, but he's like, if, if you're telling me there's a superhuman who can scale mountains and run at superhuman speed, how are we going to take him down? And he essentially refuses to help him unless the murder were to like come into view. He's like, I'm not going to waste my resources looking for a monster when we don't even know where to look. Victor is angry with the magistrate and tells him on 180, My rage is unspeakable when I reflect that the murderer whom I have turned loose upon society still exists. You refuse my just demand. I have but one resource and I devote myself, either my life or my death, to his destruction. Like, <laughs> a man comes to you from a madhouse, tells you he created a monster, he has all these loved ones who have been murdered, and you're not like, hmm... Maybe you're the one who killed them, or at the very least created a monster who killed them, so jail? I don't know. It just seems, it seems weird to me. Okay, chapter 24, or chapter 7. This is the last chapter, and then there's a few letters by Robert Walton at the end. So Frankenstein leaves Geneva for good. He takes the money with him, leaves on his hunt to kill the monster. And he says, and now my wanderings began. So he begins looking for clues as to where the monster is, and he finds himself at the cemetery where his loved ones are buried. He kneels on the graves and promises that he will pursue the monster, he calls him a demon, until he dies, and calls upon the spirits of the dead to aid him in his journey. When he finishes his promise, he hears a loud, fiendish laugh. He says, it rang on my ears long and heavily, and I felt as if all hell surrounded me with mockery and laughter. As the laughter dies away, he hears the monster as if he's whispering in his ear. He says, I am satisfied, miserable wretch. You have determined to live and I am satisfied. So the monster is taunting him, but Frankenstein runs towards the voice and begins his pursuit to kill him. He follows him along the river in vain and then to the Mediterranean through the Black Sea. You can look up his journey on Google, basically just Google like Frankenstein's journey map and there's a bunch of Google images of it, but basically he goes from Geneva down the Mediterranean coast of Italy and then up through the Black Sea through Russia towards the North Pole. He is guided for months by small clues that the monster leaves for him, like footprints in the snow. Sometimes he even leaves messages and taunts. Victor gets food from people in small cottages along the way in exchange for the money he brought. At night, he dreams of being with the people he loves, and in time, he even convinces himself that the daytime pursuit of the monster is a dream, and the nighttime dreams are his reality. The monster continues to taunt him with messages about how he's just going more and more north, where Victor will suffer from the cold and he himself will not, 
and Victor renews his vow to avenge his loved ones. They get so far north that they are now just traveling across the frozen Arctic Ocean. So when he gets to the beach of the ocean, Frankenstein obtains a sled and a pack of dogs. He found that he was gaining on the monster, and on the beach he asks people he comes in contact with before beginning to cross the ocean, he asks them about the monster and they tell him that they did see him. He also has a sled pulled by dogs and he stole their whole winter store food. Frankenstein exchanges his land sled for one that will cross the frozen ocean better and he departs again. He says he doesn't know how many days have passed since then, but he thinks it's about three weeks based on the food that he has. And one of his dog dies and just then, He sees the monster at a distance ahead of him, and he pursues him again, believing that he is gaining on him more and more. Just before he comes upon the monster, the ocean begins to roll and swell underneath the ice, and it cracks, and Victor is left floating on a piece of ice. Most of the dogs with him die at this time, except for one, I think, and he thinks he'll die too until he sees Robert Walton's ship, and they bring him aboard. Now, present time... He entreats Walton. He's like, if I die, will you take this quest upon you and kill this monster? He warns him that the monster is eloquent in his speech. He's like, don't let him convince you to let him live. You have to kill him. You have to avenge me. Okay, so this part is called Walton in continuation. So there are five letters. Letter one is written on August 26th, which is seven days after the last letter he wrote at the beginning of this book. So he's been listening to Frankenstein's story for seven days. Walton writes again to Margaret. He has told her the entire story now, written Frankenstein's every detail as he told him. He tells Margaret that Frankenstein was seized with agony and could no longer continue speaking. He says his narration was erratic. He says on 188, sometimes he commanded his countenance and tones and related the most horrible incidents with a tranquil voice, suppressing every mark of agitation. Then, like a volcano bursting forth, his face would suddenly change to an expression of the wildest rage. Walton tries to get Frankenstein to tell him the specifics about the monster's creation. Frankenstein refuses to impart any of that knowledge for fear that someone else will try to create a monster someday. Frankenstein reads over the notes that Walton had taken of his story and he makes edits to the story. Walton is just waiting for him to die at this point. He really likes Victor. He finds him extremely knowledgeable and considers him a genius. And Frankenstein tells him that when he was younger, he felt he was destined for greatness, but now he finds himself chained to an eternal end. Walton is sad that Victor is going to die, but he promises that he will kill the monster for him. So letter number two is written on September 2nd. Walton opens his letter saying he's worried he'll never see England or his friends again. They are surrounded by ice, there's no way out, and everyone on the ship feels the power of Frankenstein's eloquence, but Walton still fears mutiny from his crew. He fears that they're going to overthrow him and make them go back to England instead of journeying more north. Letter number three, September 5th. Walton doesn't think these letters will ever be sent or found, but he says he must write this anyway. So the mutiny feared has come. His crew came to him in the cabin and told him that as soon as they are free from the ice, they're going to sail back south, back home, and not continue north. They don't want to die. Frankenstein is in the room when this happens, and he addresses the crew. He says on 192, Are you so easily turned from your design? Did you not call this a glorious expedition? And wherefore was it glorious? Because it was full of dangers. So basically he tells them, he's like, You're going to be heroes if you continue on, but cowards if you return empty-handed. He tells them to steady their purpose. Don't return to your families disgraced. And the crew is unable to reply, and Walton tells them, like, go, think it over, come back with your decision tomorrow. And Walton says he will not make them go north if they don't want to, but he hopes that they will. Letter number four, September 7th, he says, the die is cast. I have consented to return if we are not destroyed. Okay, letter number five. This is the last letter written on September 12th. Walton is on his way back to England. His hope lost and his friend Victor also lost. On the 9th, the ice started to move. On the 11th, the passage south was opened up, and Frankenstein is confined to bed at this point. 
Walton tells Frankenstein that they will be returning to England. Frankenstein is obviously disappointed. He tries to get up saying he's like, I'll finish this task of killing the monster on my own, but he ends up fainting. When he wakes up, Walton says he only has hours left to live, and Frankenstein calls him to listen to his dying words. He says he's dying, but that his enemy still lives. On 194, he says, I feel myself justified in desiring the death of my adversary. During these last days, I have been occupied in examining my past conduct, nor do I find it blamable. In a fit of enthusiastic madness, I created a rational creature and was bound towards him to assure, as far as was in my power, his happiness and well-being. This was my duty, but there was another still paramount to that. The duties towards the beings of my own species had greater claims to my attention because they included a greater portion of happiness or misery. Urged by this view, I refused, and I did right in refusing to create a companion for this creature. So he renews his request for Walton to kill the monster for him, though he's like, I know I can't ask you to do that, but I'm going to ask anyway. He says, seek happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition. And this is his last advice to Walton, and he dies soon after this. Walton is sad. The ship starts sailing to England. Walton is awoken that night to a sound, a human voice, but hoarser. And he goes into the room where Frankenstein's body lies, and he sees the monster standing over him, uttering exclamations of grief and horror. The monster hears Walton and goes to leave through the window, but Walton calls to him to stop. And the monster looks at Walton and then turns back to Frankenstein. He says, in the wildest rage of some uncontrollable person, Frankenstein is remorseful. He says, that is also my victim. In his murder, my crimes are consummated. The miserable series of my being is wound to its close. Oh, Frankenstein, generous and self-devoted being, what does it avail that I now ask thee to pardon me? I, who irretrievably destroyed thee by destroying all thou love. Walton walks toward him and tells him, he's like, your repentance is in vain. And the monster says, Do you think that I was then dead to agony and remorse? He suffered not the ten thousandth portion of the anguish that was mine during the lingering details of its execution. My heart was fashioned to be susceptible of love and sympathy, and when wrenched by misery to vice and hatred, it did not endure the violence of the change without torture such as you can even imagine. After the murder of Clerval, I abhorred myself. But then he finds out that Victor's getting married and he's like, oh, oh, hell no, you don't get to be happy when I'm forever barred from that sort of love and connection. He says, yet when Elizabeth died, nay, then was I not miserable. I had cast off all feelings, subdued all anguish to riot in the excess of my despair. Evil thenceforth became my good. So Walton listens to the monster's speech and he's touched. But then he remembers that Frankenstein warned him against the eloquent speech of the monster. He calls the monster a hypocrite. He says, it's not pity that you feel. You lament only because the victim of your malignity is withdrawn from your power. And the monster tells him that he's wrong. He says on 197, no sympathy may I ever find. No guilt, no mischief, no misery can be found comparable to mine. When I run over the frightful catalog of my sins, I cannot believe that I am the same creature whose thoughts were once filled with sublime and transcendent visions of beauty and the majesty of goodness. But it is even so. The fallen angel becomes the malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had friends and associations in his desolation. I am alone. He goes on to say that Frankenstein had no way of knowing the hours and months of misery he endured and how he desired love and friendship. He says, am I to be thought the only criminal when all humankind sinned against me? But it is true I am a wretch. I have murdered the lovely and the helpless. I have strangled the innocent as they slept and grasped the death of his throat, who never injured me or any living thing. I have devoted my creator to misery. I have pursued him even to that irremediable ruin. There he lies, white and cold in death. You hate me, but your abhorrence cannot equal that which I regard myself. So he ends his speech. He tells Walton that his work is nearly complete. He says he will leave this boat and go north and make a pyre of fire and climb onto it and burn. He says, I shall no longer feel the agonies which now consume me or the prey of feelings unsatisfied, yet unquenched. 
He says when he first came to life, he reveled in it and he couldn't imagine wanting to die, but now that's all he wants. He leaves through the window and his last words are farewell to Frankenstein. He says, blasted as thou were, my agony was still superior to thine. And he climbs into a raft and Walton watches him disappear. Okay, that is the end of the book. You made it through. Not my favorite, like I said. Okay, but now I'm going to go over the themes in depth. So the first theme is the dangers of ambition and knowledge. So in the introduction of the version that I have, there's a quote that says that this book is a cautionary tale against ambition, departure from home, knowledge, and discovery. Progress in short. So both Victor Frankenstein and Robert Walton desire the fame, the recognition, and all the other perks that come with discovering something no one else has discovered. Both are willing to do dangerous things to gain this, and Frankenstein is especially blinded by his ambition as he does horrendous, unthinkable things in order to create human life. He literally digs up graves, handles dead body parts in order to create this human. He becomes so enthralled with his work that he doesn't consider the effects. He doesn't think of what's going to happen when the monster awakes. He doesn't think about what the monster is going to do. He doesn't even consider the idea that creating a monster that's bigger than him is maybe a bad idea when this monster is going to awake and have zero knowledge of human life. But he loves the idea that people will praise him for learning the secret to creating life, that they will know his name for eternity as the man who made it possible, and he even dreams about being able to reanimate the dead. This glory is all he can think about during the creation, but instead of doing the necessary work after the creature awakens, instead of teaching him, loving him, helping him be immersed in society, Frankenstein flees and leaves the creature to become the monster that he does. And on his deathbed, he warns Robert Walton not to let ambition blind him and not to aspire to become greater than nature will allow. And while Robert Walton's ambition is also great. It's just as great as Frankenstein's. He does choose to let it go rather than further endanger his crew and himself in the pursuit of this glory that he wants. But Frankenstein plays God and nature by creating life from the dead. Okay, the next theme is the danger of tampering with nature and God. So there are obviously many stories of man playing God, tampering with nature, but this is one of the most prominent for sure. The subtitle of this book, if you remember, is The Modern Prometheus. So Prometheus in Greek mythology is the titan god of fire. He created humanity out of clay, and in defiance of the god's wishes, he stole fire from the gods and gave it to the humans. And as a result, Zeus punished Prometheus for this by binding him to a rock where every day an eagle would come and eat his liver, and overnight it would grow back because he's a god, and the eagle would come again every day to eat his liver. And the liver at the time was thought to be the source of human emotion. So the parallels between Frankenstein and Prometheus are obviously many. They both created human life. They were both punished for it eternally. The monster is obviously a monster in the novel, but Frankenstein is also a monster, if not more. He's actually the true monster of this novel because He created a monster, left it alone to fend for itself, and then instead of stopping him, instead of telling anyone, instead of asking for help, he allowed the monster to seek his revenge and kill multiple people, and therefore Frankenstein is the true monster, and he's the true murderer in this story. Okay, the next theme is family versus isolation. So family is a huge part of this novel and a huge part of Frankenstein's life, and also the monster's life. There are two prominent families. In this book, the Frankensteins and the DeLacy's, the DeLacy's are the family that the monster observes and comes to love. So Frankenstein spends his younger years surrounded by his family, and as soon as he leaves his family to go to school, this is when he becomes obsessed with his work, he isolates himself, and he never comes out of this isolation. Even when he goes home, even when he marries Elizabeth, he's still isolated because he keeps all of his secrets to himself. He confides in no one else and becomes almost as isolated as the monster. The only difference is that people don't look at him and run away screaming. The family that the monster observes and comes to love, the DeLacy's, are also an idealized version of a family. This is all the monster wants. Love and family and acceptance from which he is forever barred. 
The monster blames the murders he commits to the fact that he has no family, no one to confide in, no one to keep him company. And he says that once he has a female companion, he will no longer feel the anger, the loneliness that he feels, and will no longer feel the need to murder anyone because he's happy. So what's interesting is instead of trying to find solace in each other, you know, solace is something only Frankenstein can provide the monster. And it's actually something only the monster can provide Frankenstein since he's the only one who knows what he's done and Frankenstein is unwilling to confide in anyone else. So instead of being this solace for each other, they end up destroying each other. Okay, the last theme is prejudice and alienation. So obviously everyone who comes into contact with the monster is prejudiced against him because he's frightening to look at. The monster is never given a name. If you noticed, which is another tell of how unaccepted he is, how, you know, unhuman he is. And he warns against the barbarity of man. He says, this is what happens when humans are cruel, when they are exclusive. And the fact that the only human who is kind to the monster is a blind man further proves the monster's point that man is blinded by prejudice. This alienation from humans is what the monster blames for his becoming a murderer. And Frankenstein actually alienates himself, but the result is the same. He does dangerous things in his isolation that cause the deaths of multiple people. When Frankenstein dies, the monster realizes that he's absolutely alone in the world now without him, and he goes to his death. That is the end. You have made it through one of my least favorite books. I do appreciate it for what it is. I think Mary Shelley is a genius, but it's not. It's not my favorite book. I felt the same about Dracula, and I'm sorry about it, but that is the end. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram and TikTok so that you know when new books come out, and if you're on Apple Podcasts and have time to leave me a review, I would love you for that.